Please turn with me in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 3. You can find that on page 794 in the Bibles provided for you. We're studying these minor prophets, these shorter books of the end of the Old Testament. We've been doing them in chronological order, so we're at about 500 years before Christ. God has brought his people back from captivity in Babylon where they were taken for discipline. And now he's brought them back to Jerusalem. They started well. They started rebuilding the church in the center of town. And then because they got some opposition, they quit doing it. They started spending their money on themselves. God sent Haggai to tell them to go back to rebuilding that church, which would remind them that he is their savior that visible, physical reminder, that rhythm in their weekly life. And they started building. Then he sent Zechariah about the same time, a little bit of overlap to say, it's not enough that you just start doing, you've got to be. I need to rebuild who you are, how you got to this place in the first place where the church was not the center of your life, where I'm no longer as your saving God, the center, the priority of your life. He doesn't do it in a harsh way, a threatening way. He's passionate, but he woos them back. Here we have the highest point of the book of Zechariah, chapter 3. I told you when we started this book that while we always see Jesus... Uh, in every part of Scripture because he is there, because the Bible was written to reveal Jesus. In this prophet, we would see him more clearly, more easily than we see him in any other book. In reading chapter 3, you'll understand why I say that. Beginning in verse 1, Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me, Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua is standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I've taken away your iniquity and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Now the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. 
and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Brothers and sisters, grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we, we beg you, send your Holy Spirit to open our eyes that we might see you in all of your beauty, the beauty you became and gave to us after becoming our filth. Open our eyes for the first time or the thousandth time. Open our eyes and thus our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said together, amen. My friend Phil Riken at Wheaton College loves to tell the story about uh, another professor at Wheaton who was a pioneer, is a pioneer in prison ministry, especially among youth. His name is Don Smarto. When Phil was a little boy, he heard Don Smarto's testimony. Smarto had uh, grown up in, in uh, a tradition with vestments. He wanted to be a priest. He was taken with those vestments. And, and so he wanted someday to wear vestments like that and be a holy man of God, so he thought. And so he entered, eventually, seminary to become a priest. But while he was in seminary, he, he went to a... Uh, a movie one evening, and and uh, in that movie there was a a bishop portrayed, a man who looked holy and devout and pious on the outside, but uh, when but the, a strong wind swept through in the movie and parted his robe, parted his vestments, and revealed a rotting skeleton inside. In an instant, Smarto said he was convicted. The Holy Spirit used that, worked on him, and said, that's me. I am that man wearing vestments that make me appear to be holy on the outside, but I'm a rotting skeleton on the inside. But in his particular faith tradition at the time, he didn't know what to do about that. He went back to his seminary and put his nose to the grindstone and started back to his studies and distracted himself from the conviction. We'll talk more about Smarto later. But for now, it's a perfect picture of what is happening in this text. A man named Joshua, whom we've already met with in Haggai, who was named as the high priest at the time, but, but, but it was a common name. It's Yeshua. It means the Lord saves. It's a, it's a foreshadowing of the coming of, of Jesus Christ. Joshua represents the high priest who represents the whole nation of Israel, the people of Judah standing before God. And despite the, 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 the official nature of his have his holy garments on the outside, it reveals someone who is sinful and rotting on the inside. It's who we are. No matter how pretty and clean and handsome we look this morning, no matter how many good works people see on the outside and the inside, we are sinful people. We are 
dead in our trespasses and sins without a savior. What is our hope? The hope is here, this prophecy of Jesus Christ, the one who came to do everything that we needed. Not only do we have a prophecy of Jesus Christ, we have the whole Trinity presented here as the three persons of the Godhead who in their covenant with each other pledged themselves to save us, to do everything in their power, to cooperate with one another in order to save us, to adopt our guilt, to accomplish our cleansing and to apply to us ultimately the redemption purchased by Christ in his death and resurrection. Look how it unfolds beginning in verses one through three, this picture of Joshua, the high priest. Of course, these are dreams. These, this is the fourth of the, of the eight night visions. And, and uh, Zechariah dreams that Joshua, the high priest, stands before the angel of the Lord, who is in verse two, identified as the Lord himself. We noticed last week with the angel of the Lord, uh, it's a pre-incarnate picture of Christ. It's used interchangeably. Jehovah is identified with the angel of the Lord. And so here uh, he appears before uh, this judging person of the Godhead. And standing at his right hand in the traditional place of an accuser at the gate is Satan. Literally in Hebrew, the Satan. Satan means accuser. The accuser. The accuser is doing what Satan does. It's all he does. It is, he, he is a primary thing he does. He accuses. He accuses in our consciences. It's the only place he can accuse those who are justified by Christ. Notice how he is immediately dismissed. Satan was standing there in order to accuse him, but Satan never opens his mouth before the Lord sends him out. The Lord rebuke you. Because I have chosen this one. I've chosen Jerusalem. And then then, here's the problem. Joshua, though he is officially there, appropriately there as the official priest, Satan is at his right hand to accuse him. God stops him from accusing him. The problem is that, that Joshua's own garments accuse him. He doesn't need Satan to accuse him. He is self-condemned because he's standing before the Holy of Holies, before a holy God in garments that are filthy. Hebrew is, the Hebrew is exact. He's covered in excrement from head to toe. The high priest couldn't appear that way and live. We talked last week about the day of atonement. The holy, the the priest enters the holy of holies. And if, if he's, if he's not doing everything just right, he's going to be dead and they're going to have to drag him out with a rope. Well, being covered in excrement from head to toe is certainly a disqualifier. Everything had to be perfect. There was no margin for error. He had, to have a, he had to have a clean turban on his head. He had to have a clean ephod in his, in his uh, proper place. His robes had to be clean. Uh, Exodus is even uh, more thorough. He had to be clean down to his underwear. Everything had to be absolutely clean from toe to head. 
And if it was not in place, if it was not immaculate, then he would be struck dead by the judgment of God. They'd pull him out of a rope. Here is Joshua covered. We're not told just yet how he became covered in this section. There, we're not told at all. Somebody had to put it on him. Later, we understand as he represents the nation of Israel, he says, God says, I will remove the iniquity, verse 9, of this land in a single day. So now it is clear by the end of the text that uh, Joshua is filthy this way. He's contaminated this way. He has been contaminated as a representative of the people. On the outside anyway, on the inside, he is a sinner just like the rest of them. It's very clear from this passage that no one can appear before God holy in his own works. The Bible talks about being clothed with sin and the need to be reclothed, to be cleansed. And the Bible warns that no matter how hard we work, no matter how, how disciplined we are in our self-righteousness, our best days, our best works, well, Isaiah Isaiah is even more blunt. He says they're like filthy rags, like filthy minstrel rags. Even your best works on your best days are corrupted in some part by sin. Seems absolutely hopeless, doesn't it? I have a friend who, when I was in college, one of my roommates went on a mission trip to Uganda one of our professors. It's a very intense mission trip and his stomach didn't agree with uh, the, the food of Uganda. He got sick, very sick and, and uh, to the point that he dehydrated. And they were out in the countryside. There was a, the only place they had to relieve themselves was a latrine. It was an open latrine. My friend was sick in the middle of the night. He went to that latrine and uh, he lost his balance. Yeah, don't get ahead of me. (laughs) He got dizzy. He passed out. He fell in head first. He couldn't get himself out. So one of the pastors in the village heard of his plight. He got in and got him out, got my friend out. And then he went to the clean water source in the village and he cleaned himself off. And my friend who was still out of it, he cleaned him off too. And he clothed him again. Now you say, pastor, that's just not appropriate to talk about excrement in church. It's just not talk about, it's not appropriate to talk about falling into latrines. How are we going to have our lunch? How is it, how is that more repulsive than our sin before God? Jesus came down into our filth. He adopted our guilt. 
he became filthy from head to toe. And because he was filthy with sin from head to toe, he was condemned. That's why he died. That's why he descended into hell. That's why he died. And yet, because of the righteousness of his life, his righteous accomplishments in life and in death, like clothes were put back on him, put away the unclean clothes of our sin. He became sin for us. And when he had justified that sin, he sprang to life clean so that he might robe us in the same righteousness. You remember what we studied in Revelation 19, that beautiful wedding supper of the lamb? There was the bridegroom. She was dressed in fine linen, bright and clean. Fine linen stands for the, for the righteous acts of the saints, John says. These were garments given her to wear. Those garments, those good works, just like Tim said, we can't do them. We can't do enough of them. They have to be given to us just as they were given to Joshua. The difference is that Joshua, this high priest, once he was reclothed in new garments, still was a sinful high priest. We needed a better one. We needed one who would grow up from the beginning as a branch conceived in a holy fashion to grow up without a sinful nature, to become a holy priest from the inside out who would not only be robed in the righteousness of his own accomplishments, but able then by joining us to himself to robe us in the same and make us righteous. Do you struggle with guilt? Real guilt, false guilt, but you struggle with it. Why do you struggle with it? Do you think by your struggling, you will somehow make yourself right? If I can just forgive myself, you say, well, you know what? If you forgave yourself, it wouldn't make a whit of difference because you're condemned before God. You're not the judge. You need to be forgiven by Christ. And if you're forgiven by Christ and robed in the righteousness of Christ, then it doesn't matter what your conscience says to you. It doesn't matter how your false heart accuses you. Jesus has declared you righteous. That's why we come to the Lord's Supper. By the way, one reason I urge you to come to the evening service is because we serve the Lord's Supper here every week. You need the Lord's Supper. You know why you need it? Not because uh, you can, so that you can come and say, uh, I feel good enough right now. My faith feels strong enough. I feel righteous enough. I think I'll come take the Lord's Supper. No, when you get in that line to take the Lord's Supper, here's what you're saying. I am as filthy as anyone who has ever lived. So I'm coming to my Savior for cleansing. And then we get in line and we walk with here. We walk with each other right here. We come, we come down this aisle. We come, or we come up there. We take the Lord's Supper. And we could just as well as we're walking along, we could say, what are you in for? What, are you, what did you do? I know what I did. 
Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. How about you? I'm a liar. I'm a cheater. I'm selfish. Yeah, that's, we're in the right line. You come to the Lord's Supper to be reminded that you cannot clean yourself. You need the righteousness of Christ. And so you come here reminded of what he did in order to re-clothe you. He adopted our guilt. And, and then the father, <clears throat> the father accomplished our cleansing. The father takes this righteousness that Christ earned for us and he puts it on us from Christ. Verse two, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has not chosen who, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Satan, as I said, his primary duty is to accuse. Can I tell you something that will unwind you? I have a few friends who have been a part of praying for people who were oppressed or possessed by demons. And in those few occasions when I've, I've dealt with that kind of thing, not in person, but those who were oppressed or so forth. I've, my, my friends have warned me, George, if you're in that place and you're praying for that person to be released from the devil, and we don't, we don't do exorcisms, we don't do holy water and that sort of thing. We, do, we know that only prayer can release that person. He says, be warned. Those demons are spies on us. They're always looking for intel, things by which they might accuse us. And they might bring up things in that, in that meeting that you have done in secret. And you've got to remember, you're not there on your own righteousness. You tell those demons, this is not about me. Christ has died for me. Of course, those things are true of me. Of course, I've done all those things. Nobody else has seen them, but you despise seen them. Of course, I've done all those things and more that you haven't mentioned. This isn't about me. This is about God who has accomplished justification on behalf of those who believe him by faith. It's the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, that cleanses us from all our sins. God says, this isn't just a, a fanciful picture. This is what God has to say all the time. I rebuke you, Satan, the accuser. This one I have clothed with my righteousness. This one is a brand plucked from the flame. I have chosen him. And if I have chosen him, and if I have justified him, just as we read earlier in the, in the, uh, in, in the responsive reading, if I have chosen him, if I have pronounced him or her righteous, there is no one left to condemn. He applies it to us. And not only does he take away the filthy garments and give us clean garments, he gives us beautiful garments, sparkling, beautiful garments that put us in a position that's better than Adam before he fell because we are united to Christ and uh, our life, therefore, is as stable as Christ himself. We can't be, we can't fail with Christ as our savior. When God looks at us, he can't see anything but the beauty of Christ. And, and Zechariah recognizes that. He becomes so excited about that, about this, this reclothing. Zechariah butts in. 
interrupts the angel. And he said, put a clean turban on his head too, verse 5. And the angel says, yeah, that's a good idea. Take the words out right out of my mouth, effectively. Put a clean turban on his head. What's Zechariah saying? He is so beautiful. Christ is so beautiful, what he has done for me. I want him to be my king. I want him to rule me. Whatever he says, whatever he wants from me, whatever priorities he sets for me, however he wants me to speak, however he wants me to behave in private as well as public, whatever he wants to me to make priority in my schedule, however he wants me to spend my money, however which he, which he, way he wishes for me to give, whatever he does, because he's my beautiful king, I want to submit to him. And he makes you beautiful. He makes us beautiful. He applies this redemption to us in verses 6 to 10. He applies it to us in such a way that we begin to participate in his redemptive work. The angel of the Lord has solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Do you realize how sad that sentence would be if it only referred to Joshua the high priest or to Judah by extension? Look, here's, here's all you have to do. You be obedient and I will bless you. It never works. But when, he, when we understand that he says this to Jesus, <clears throat> if, you will, <clears throat> if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, my son, Jesus, you will rule my house and have charge of my courts. Jesus did this. He came, he became obedient that he might apply to us that obedience as well as the righteousness freeing us from condemnation. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. On the cornerstone, on Christ. I will build my church. <clears throat> and the single stone with seven eyes, the representative of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who applies this redemption to you and me, the Holy Spirit who enables us to live as kings and priests like our Savior in this world. That's what he's included us. Can I just remind you of something? Because you and I, we're a a subculture of overachievers. And we're always worried, aren't we, if we're useful. I just want to be useful. I don't don't want to be irrelevant anymore. I don't want anybody to to, to, uh, think that I'm not not, uh, useful. And so we earn our usefulness. We overachieve in all kinds of ways. And then we bring that right into worship and we say, you know what I'm here to do? I'm here to become more useful, more useful to God. I'm just going to tell you, 
a disappointing secret. You and I are not useful. And we'll never be useful to God. God doesn't need us. He, he got along quite well before he created the world. He had a peaceful, quiet life. And then he made us. We've never been useful to him. He allows us to participate in redemption and gain joy by that. And yes, he uses us. But what will really set your heart on fire to love and serve Jesus is to realize by the application of the Holy Spirit to realize, you know, he's loved me all these years and continues to love me, though I'm really not useful to him. He just chooses to use me. And I come to this same Lord's table every week and I don't, I'm, I'm sinful. <clears throat> I'm sinful as I come here. I'm still a sinner. And yet he, he brushes me up. He cleanses me. He, he, he wipes me up. He cleans me. He, he refits me. He reclothes me and he pushes me out the door and he says, let's do it again. When you realize that God, unlike anybody in your world, anybody in your culture, anybody, any voice in your own mind, God continues to love you and use you, though you've never been truly useful to him. You've never given him anything, but he is as delighted over you as he is for his own son. Isn't it beautiful, this grace thing? Well, back to Don Smarto. He couldn't get that image out of his head as he continued to study in seminary. One evening he was studying his books and he just couldn't get that image out of his head. He was, and so he, he, he ran outside and he looked up to the heavens and he thought, I, maybe there's some sign in the heavens that will give me some hope. But as he looked up in the sky, about that time, a cloud came over and covered. It was a moonlit night. The cloud covered the moon. It became a kind of an eclipse. He couldn't see his hand in front of his face. He was in the cornfields of Iowa. He's wandering around and he, and he, he stumbles around uh, trying to, to find his way back and he bumps into a pole. And the pole was humming. It was rough. It had splinters, covered in splinters, but he grabbed a hold of that pole to get his orientation. <clears throat> then the cloud drifted. The moon came out and he looks up. He sees it's a, it's a power line. And silhouetted against the moon is the cross beam of the power line holding up the wires. And he said, looking up there, I, I finally understood the only source of my peace. Here's how he puts it. I knew, I really knew that Christ had died for me. It was coupled with the more important revelation that I was a sinner and I was not the good person I thought I was a moment before. All at once, I embraced the telephone pole and I began to cry. I must have hugged that piece of wood for nearly an hour. I can imagine Jesus nailed to that pole, blood dripping from his wounds. I felt as if the blood were dripping over me, cleansing me of my sin. 
and my unworthiness. You want to be an instrument that is used effectively by God. Then recognize what Christ had to do for you. What he chose to do for you. What the Father delighted in sending him to do. What the Holy Spirit delights in applying to your life continually. Whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time, look again at that cross. And embrace the one who has cleansed you from head to toe by being a savior from head to toe. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, how can we say thanks for all the grace you have shown to us? Some here probably, perhaps, Father, whose hearts are still hard, resting smugly in their own righteousness. Be merciful to them and break them. There are others here who feel so guilty and unworthy, they they feel like they're on the sidelines. Their worship is handicapped. Their service is hindered. Release them this day. Everyone else in between, capture us again with the cross of Christ, the love of God the Father, and the jealous love of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen.